most of you know me well enough to know that I love coffee. I love coffee. There is one thing I splurge on is coffee. We order uh, a bag of beans every week delivered to my house, and we kill that bag of beans every single week. And at times, we drink even more than just that bag of beans. And the reason why I share with you is this. Uh, with a coffee drinker like me, here's what happens. Uh, you ended up having a lot of cups that are stained. A lot of our cups, if you've ever been in your house, particularly those who are white inside, have coffee stain in it. Uh, one of the worst habits that I've accumulated over the years in drinking coffee is, and my wife and my kids know that, is that I often just leave a cup of coffee. I'll drink my cup of coffee in the morning, and it, I will ended up having maybe two sips left at the bottom of my cup. I don't know why, but I just don't end up finish the cup. I don't finish drinking the whole mug of coffee, and that coffee just stays there. And if you know what it does to the cup, it starts getting really brown. And I've tried all sorts of ways to wash it. I've used baking soda. I've used uh, these supposedly uh, pure uh, uh, cleansing stuff for the, uh, for the cups. I've used all sorts of ways to try to clean these cups. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. So I just resorted just rinsing it and washing it. And just the, the stain just keep building and building and building. And so the cups that I use uh, often daily are super brown. And I finally decided, what if I just don't use white mugs? I just use color ones, then no one would be able to tell the stain in there, right? If you use a brown one, it just looks like it just blends right in, right? It's not a good idea, right? Um, I share this with you because I think we all live in this stain in our lives. And not coffee stain, because I assume not many of you like coffee. Some of you do. Not tea stain, but this thing called stain of sins. I think all we all live in a life that is stained by sin. If you live in Los Angeles this past week, you were here. Hannah alluded to that. Kobe Bryant, the death of Kobe Bryant. Last week at the end of worship service, everyone's checking their phone and finding out what happened. We've seen brokenness. We've seen chaos in this world. Coronavirus. The death overseas, the death happening in the United States of America. We've seen brokenness, we've seen the, the effect, the stain of sin happening in our world, day in and day out. But let me be clear, though, I'm not saying that every death, every uh, disease is directly correlated with sin, that if you sin today, you will uh, co contract some disease tomorrow. But what the Bible does tell us, we do live under the stain of sin, that ultimately, death sicknesses, brokenness, chaos in this world does find its way all the way back to what we just read in Genesis chapter 3. That none of us live outside of this stain. None of us can wash away this stain. We literally were born with the stain of sin in our lives. And my mug filled with coffee stain is just a mug. But your life and my life are real life that have consequences when we have the stain of sin in our lives. For those of you who did not join us last week, we just started a new uh, sermon series called uh, GPS, finding our way, uh, finding our place in God's story. 
The whole point of the series is to walk through the Bible. Uh, I know it's a tall task to walk through the entire Bible in six weeks, but I'm going to do my best to help us to see that this Bible is not just bits and pieces of stories that piece together, that they have their own point, that they have their own interest. One part of it is about the law, one part of it is about Jesus growing up, one part of it is about the future, but all of these are linked up in one story. Last week, if you remember, we broke down the story, this, this framework of every story fits into these four things. Creation, there's always this perfect world. Every movie, every story every, that you read, every TV show that you've seen, always fall into this category. There's this perfect world that he created, and, and, and these people living happily in this world. But something happened. There's a conflict. Something's not working. And enter into this, this, this family, this couple, and then it leads to these people trying to find redemption, trying to find a fix, a solution to a problem. And just like every other good story, there will be a good ending, that there's restoration to what it ought to be. And that's how every story goes. And the reason why every story goes with this framework is because the story of God is based on this framework. And so the goal well, uh, of this series is that we're going to walk through this. Uh, last week I started, uh, we're not going to go through four parts because there are kind of uh, details that I need to break down into. So we're actually going to do it in six. Last week I started the series on uh, talking about creation, the perfect world, if you remember, that God had created for you and I. The very first two chapters of the Bible tells us that the world that God created did not come with death, did not come with pain, did not come with broken relationship, did not come, come with messed up family, it did not come with any pollution at all. That original creation by God was as perfect as it comes. In fact, the, most, the greatest perfection there was in that story was that God had perfect relationship with human beings. That God created Adam and Eve. Perfect. That God will walk in the Garden of Eden and He will chat, He will talk, He will walk with Adam and Eve. And they have fulfillment, significance, and meaning to their lives. In fact, there will be jobs for them to do that they would not feel like work. That will give them real purpose in life. And that's what we covered. That's the first act of the story of God. And God being the main character of that story. And you and I get to be a part of that. That was the very original intent. But today, we're going to go to the second act. The second act of this story goes... To Genesis chapter 3. At least it starts in Genesis chapter 3, but what we'll see, it will carry us throughout the entire Bible, including you and I today and in our lives. So if you read, uh, if you follow along with Hannah earlier, I want to retell the story once again. After this perfect world that God had created, one day a serpent showed up. A serpent showed up. We didn't know from the text that it was the devil. In fact, you have to read all the way to Revelation and find out that serpent was actually Satan himself. But now that we force, uh, uh, we can we can look ahead. We know that ser- the serpent was the lying serpent was Satan himself, disguised as a serpent, to approach Eve, and he he came in and asked Eve this question: Did God really say you couldn't eat from any of the trees in the garden? Remember, there are two trees in the garden. Did God really say you cannot eat? From any tree of the garden. And Eve told the serpent and said, no, 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 God said we can eat from every tree of the garden except one. Except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Because God said, if we eat from that tree, we will surely die. 
And of course, the serpent is tricky, and the serpent knows how to trick Eve. And so the serpent asked Eve and said, "You will." They told Eve, "You won't die." In a sense, he was basically accusing that God was lying to them. He said, "In fact, the the serpent said, 'You won't die.' You know, you know the reason why God doesn't want you to eat from that tree was because God doesn't want you to be like Him. Because the moment you eat of that fruit." You will get to know what is good and evil. And what the serpent implies is this, that don't you want to know everything? Here's Eve looking at that fruit, looking at the serpent. This beautiful fruit, this idea that I get to know everything, both good and evil. Why would God God not want me to know that? And so Eve, without giving too much thought, took the fruit, ate it. And just like every other good old sin that we committed, we don't keep it to ourselves, we pass it on to the next person. Eve ate the fruit, pass it on to who? Adam. And Adam ate the fruit, and instantly, they did not die. Instantly, they did not die. In fact, their eyes were opened. And you would think that, man, open eyes, open vision, isn't that a great thing? But the story tells us otherwise. Their eyes were open, but what they saw was not a good thing. What they saw was guilt and shame in their lives. They realized they had done something wrong. They have rebelled against God. And they become shameful about what they've done, who they were. In fact, they can see that they were naked themselves. They start sowing the fake leaves to cover up themselves. And later on that day, Adam and Eve, being ashamed, living in the garden, God showed up. Just like what he would do normally, day after day, walking in the cool of the day. And God came alongside and asked you, Adam, where are you? Adam, where are you? Normally it's not a problem for God to find Adam because Adam and Eve will be looking forward to seeing God show up that they can commune together. They can walk together, talk together. But this time it's different because Adam answered, I heard you that you were coming and I, I, I was afraid because I, I, was, I, was, I feel ashamed because I was naked. In that moment, God said, how did you know that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the very tree I told you not to eat from? See, God does, it's not that God doesn't know the answer. God knew the answer. God wanted Adam to know the answer. And you know what Adam's reply was? Guilty as charged? Nope. Adam's reply was this. This woman, the one you made for me, made me eat it. Then God went to Eve and said, Eve, what did you do? Guess what Eve did? Guilty as charged? No. The serpent tricked me to eat it. You see, at that moment, God goes to the serpent and said, Serpent, he cast a curse on the serpent and said, From now on you will be cursed. You will be crawl on, the bell, on your belly. You will be now become the enemy of the woman and, his off, and her offspring. And her, you will bite the heel of that offspring and the, and, the, the, and the offspring will crush your head. God pronounced a judgment upon the serpent. But not only to the serpent, he also went on back to Adam and Eve, not excusing themselves by blaming other people, but holding them accountable to the things that they've done, the choices they've made outside of the rule of God. And God spoke to Adam and Eve and said this, because of what you've committed, Eve, from now on, childbearing will be exceedingly painful. 
Adam, work once was given to you for pleasure, for purpose and meaning. Now work will be exceedingly hard, difficult. You will, be, you will sweat. You will have to work hard to cultivate the land and just to get a little bit of food out of it. But not only your, who you are and what you do, but your relationship with one another will be affected. That you will constantly fight for power. That man, you will fight to, to be a leader over the woman. And woman, you will want to be a leader over the man. But not only that, now you would both die and return back to the dust that I once made you. And God kicked them out of the Garden of Eden, the very place, the perfect garden that they were meant to live in forever and ever with God. And God put an angel, a war angel, in front of Garden of Eden and put a flaming sword so that no one would be coming to get from the fruit of the tree of life. God kicked them out of the Garden of Eden and, and forever they will be expelled from the very place that God had made for these human beings. And after all that disaster, you would think that Adam and Eve would know what to do. I think many times when we look at the story of the fall, we think that it stops right there. But what I want to tell you today is that the fall never stopped. Because after Adam and Eve got kicked out, you know what happened? They gave birth to two sons, Cain and Abel. Immediately, the stain of sin continued, continued to, to affect human beings. If you remember the story of Cain and Abel, Genesis chapter five, Cain and uh, chapter four, Cain and Abel, Cain got jealous of, her, of his brother, murdered his brother, and you would think God by that time, like you see, man, like these people are messed up. Let me just hit the restart button and wipe them out. But God actually protected Cain, as we will see later. And sin continue, sin didn't stop, because after that, the world get even worse. That it gets to the story of Noah, the world was so evil that God said, I literally want to restart the whole earth. But in, in it, we see God's grace in that he preserved one family and anim, a pair of every animal on earth. And we see the flood washing over the whole world, whole world and God had to restart in that way. And you would think by that time Noah came out of the, the ark, he would, he would for sure know how to live godly life, how to be holy before God, and the stain of sin will be washed away by the flood after all. You know what happened? Noah got drunk. And after that, things did not get any better. The people, of the, uh, the people populate the world and they start building this tower of Babel. They want to build a staircase. It was a Middle East, uh, Asian Near East uh, metaphor of reaching, a, uh, reaching to God, want to be like God. So the Tower of Babels are being built, and God just, uh, noticed that they want to become like God. And the sin was so pervasive that God scattered all the people all over the world. The cycle of sin continued. The stain of sin continued to pollute every soul on earth. And by the way, that's only Genesis chapter 11. We haven't even gone halfway through the book of Genesis. Let me continue for you. Genesis chapter 12. This man named Abram is supposed to be righteous. Only to find out that later we read the story that he continued to be polluted by the stain of sin. Lied twice about his wife. Just to save himself. Same thing happened to his son Isaac. Eventual Isaac's son Jacob. Not the Jacob here. 
Did you come in the Bible? His name means liar, deceiver. Talk about the stain of sin. So permeated, he gave birth to 12 sons, 12, eventually 12, 12 tribes of Israel. Their 11 brothers hated one of their brothers so much that they want to sell him and kill him. So they end up selling him to be a slave in Egypt. And by the end of Genesis, we don't see sin decreasing by any measure. In fact, we see sin increase all the more. We see the sin get darker into the souls of human beings. I could stop right there, but I wouldn't because that's not where the fall stop. If you just open your Bible with me and just go to your table of contents, uh, content. After Genesis, chapter, after Genesis, we see the, the scene of sin. In Exodus, we see more sin coming upon the world. The people of God, now chosen by God, are in Egypt. And guess what Pharaoh does and the Egyptians does? They try to drive them out. They try to massacre all of them. The sin continues on. In Leviticus, we see laws upon laws that God meant for people to worship him, but yet people continue to rebel against him. We go to Numbers, where people, God's trying to bring them to the promised land, but only to find out they just keep going in circles because they rebel and refuse to trust God. They stay in the desert for 40 years, going in circle upon circle. We go to Deuteronomy. God needs to give them twice, second time of the law. Because they couldn't hear it the first time. They broke the tablet the first time. We go down to Joshua. Now God really is bringing the second generation into the promised land. The leader now is not lo- no longer Moses. It's Joshua. And you would think, man, after 40 years they have learned their lessons. Yet Joshua, after fighting a few good battles for God, forget that they need to consult God. To trusting God into the battle. And so now they got in trouble. Judges, this is a cycle of God giving them a king, well, giving them a judge to help them, but people don't listen to the judges of God, and so they rebel, and then when they rebel, they, sub, uh, they suffer from the consequences, they suffer from the consequences, they start crying back to God, and God gives them a judge, and just go in cycle, and cycle, and cycle. Ruth, the people of God were not meant to mix marriage with those who are, who are foreigners. They didn't listen. And through that, we see the mercy of God. First Samuel, Second Samuel, God wanted, uh, the people of God wanted a king. When they have the king of kings and lord of lords, they said, no, we want a human king to govern us because we trust people. Only to find out that the first king that they have, Saul, was no man of God. The one, the one uh, uh, after him was, was, was great, but no better. He's not perfect. King David, adulterer, murderer. Slept with someone's wife, then killed a husband. First Kings, Second Kings. Kings continued to get worse and worse. Eventually got to a point to King Solomon, the son of King David. He was so messed up, having so many wives and, and into so many women, that his sons start dividing his kingdom. Now one kingdom becomes two kingdoms. As if that's not enough. The stain of sin continue to deepen in people's lives. With two kingdoms, now double the time to sin. 
and look at the rest of the major prophets, the rest of the minor prophets, all the names you cannot pronounce in this in the book uh, in the in the table of contents. Every single one of those were a rebuke of a judgment upon the people of God who have sinned against God. Years upon years, God warning that I will kick you out of this promised land. I will drive you out even though you're my own people. They refused to listen. God had called the people of God whores, prostitutes, unfaithful wives. God had to send locusts to warn them. But not only judging on, upon them, but God also said the people, the nations around them who are sinning against the nation of Israel will also be judged. Time and time again we see the sins get deeper and deeper and deeper. Why am I going through all these? I could go through every one of the 36 books and tell you the sins that's committed in the Old Testament and in the New in the next 27. The reason why I'm telling you is this. It is one simple truth. Here's the truth I want us to remember is this, that we are sinful people and we just can't help it. We are sinful people and we just cannot help it. Can you go to the next slide, please? We are sinful people and we just can't help it. You are born with a condition called sin. You may be thinking, oh, that's so unfair. Adam and Eve messed up and I got to pay for the price for that? Now, you take a, take a good look at my hair. I don't tell people to do that very often. Take a good look at my hair. I just got a haircut recently. It's not as obvious, but you take a good look at my hair, you notice there's a lot of white hair on my sides. Part of the beauty and blessing of being a son of my father is that he had a lot of white hair. He has a lot of white hair. He has a lot of white hair when he was really young. And what that means is that as he gave birth, uh, he, him and a mom gave birth to me, the DNA somehow got passed to me that I get a lot of white hair. Now, it comes in handy sometimes, particularly I look relatively young, so many times people will say that when they see me with kids, uh, they, they thought they're not my kids. Or when they find out that I'm a pastor, they're like, you're too young to be a pastor. So the white, the white hair comes in a little handy to make me look a little bit older, a little more mature, hopefully. But that's not something I get to choose. I was literally born with it. I start getting white hair in college. And it was not because I study hard. It was not because I do a lot of thinking. That's just part, part of my life. Now, that's not a big deal right have white hair. And I, I, my, my kids actually ask me, are you going to dye that? I'm like, no, I'm not going to dye that. I'm going to look cool with the white hair, right? So uh, I love some salt and pepper right here, so it's good. Um, that's not a big deal, honestly, right? Uh, especially for a guy, I, I can care less. But here's the thing, though. My wife, on the other hand, also came with some DNA. From her parents. Perhaps you don't know that. Some of you guys know that. Uh, my wife had this thyroid condition. Um, that hyperthyroidism, right? Hypo, yeah. She's under. Uh, she, so she has this condition by birth that she has issues with her thyroid. What that means is that every single day of her life, she needed to take medicine. Every day. And there's nothing that... She can do apart from taking medicine to get that healed. That is a condition that she was born with. And there's absolutely nothing that she can do. All she can do is every single day that she can take medicine. Like, I don't think, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think if you don't take one day, she would, like, just drop and die. But I think if she doesn't take it, it affects her, her health significantly. 
I think that's on a physical level, but in reality for all of us. The reason why I went through all these sins, through every book of the, of the Old Testament, is for us to realize that we are born with this condition, this disease called sin. And there is not one thing that you get to do about it on your own. If you don't believe me, just go show up to our nursery, to our preschool. Just sit there for half an hour. You will see the effect of sin manifest itself in myriads of ways. If you don't believe me that sin exists, next time when someone cut you, cut you off on the, on the freeway, if someone says something bad to you, instantly your reaction to that person, very rarely, are holy, perfect, and blameless. We are all born with sinful nature in us because of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God. Now today, you and I continue to live in that sin. There's absolutely nothing that we can do about it. But here's the reality, though. With that sin, it comes with a consequence. Just like me, my DNA gave me white hair. I can diet if I want to, but if I don't diet, that's just how it is. My wife has to take medicine every single day. There's a consequence to that condition that I have, that she has, and I think for all of us to have in Scripture, this condition of sin requires, necessitates judgment from God. And that is just not something that we like to hear. There is judgment from God for our lives, for every single sin, every word that we say, every thought that we have. See, sin matters to God. Sin matters to God because God is a holy God. God is a perfect God. Sin matters to God as much, if not more, than sin matters to you. Again, think back the next time when someone sinned against you. Next time if someone says something about you, texts something about you, interact with you in such a way that you don't appreciate, instantly you believe in judgment. Instantly you believe in sin, the, the aversiveness of sin. Instantly you believe in justice. Now let's think about that for a second. If that is your reaction to what justice is, how much more does this holy, perfect, blameless God would think of against him with any little bit of sin? If you as a sinful person hate sin, how much would a perfectly sinless God would hate sin? That's why sin has a judgment. We need, sin needs to be paid for every single time. You might feel like you don't get to pay for it now. The scripture tells us clearly, one day there will be a judgment of our sins. We see that in, in the story right here in Genesis chapter 3. God did not just let Adam, let Adam and Eve off the hook. He pronounced judgment on them. There will be toil for your work. There will be uh, pain, uh, pain for your childbirth, for the serpent. You will be on your belly. You, you will be in enmity toward the, the, the woman and her, her offspring. And one day, in fact, there will be judgment that the offspring, the offspring of the woman, we will see next week, meaning Jesus Christ, will crush the head of the serpent. There will be judgment for every single sin that we're committed. And if we can't do anything about our sin, we're all on the same path on that judgment. Which Hebrews 9.27 tells us, just as man is destined to die once after that, to face judgment. The very fact that we'll all die is an evidence that one day we will have judgment. 
and God will pronounce judgment upon us before every person who has sinned. God is the holy judge, and he, he gets the right to be the holy judge because he's the God who created all perfect things. But here's the good news. Even as we walk through every single book here, we see the sign of sin, the stain of sin in your life and my life. There's good news because God is not the only, he's not only the holy judge, but he is also the gracious redeemer. That he is the source of grace and mercy of your life and my life. Man, I want to point, it, point out to you something here. As we read through Genesis chapter 3, from the very get-go, when sin entered into the world, God had already shown grace and mercy. In verse 15, Genesis 3, Genesis 3 verse 15, in his pronouncement, against, a judgment against the serpent, he said this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, the offspring of the woman, meaning prophesying about Jesus, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. From the very moment when sin entered into humanity, God already had a plan of redemption, already had a plan to save you and I. He already planned, he did not, he did not catch Jesus off guard, uh, God off guard, like, wow, sin entered into this imperfect, uh, into this perfect world. What am I going to do? God already planned it in there from that very moment that one day his son will have to die to pay for your sin and my sin. That is the, the grace of our Lord Jesus. We see in Cain and Abel, Cain deservedly to be cast out, deservedly to be killed for his murdering of his brother. But you know what the Bible says? God gave judgment upon him. But in Genesis chapter 4, verse 15, the Lord said to Cain, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, in fear that any who, anyone who found him shall attack him. God protected Cain. God did not spare Cain and say, you are, you are free of whatever that you think. But God, in the midst of the judgment, gave him grace, gave him mercy, and make sure that no one can kill Cain in, re, in retaliation. See, the God that you and I believe in, the God that we read from the Scripture, is not just a holy judge, but he's also a gracious redeemer. But here's the takeaway for you. As we think about our place in this, if really if you come to terms that you are sinful, you can't do anything about it. One of the biggest mistakes we all make a lot of times in churches is this. When we talk about sin, our natural lesson, takeaway point is this. Let's try to be better. Let's try to sin less. Let's get some accountability to help me to sin less. I think if we believe that is the story of the, of the Scripture, the story of the Bible, the story of God, I think we will miss completely the whole point of the Bible. Because the takeaway from the story is not that God created a perfect world, now you're messed up, now try harder. Because as I've shown you, people try real hard. I try real hard not to sin. And I believe for many of you, you really do want to try not to sin. But at the end of the day, we still sin. The point of the story is not try harder not to sin. The point of the story is not to have an a, 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 a improved version of you. You don't need, I don't need a better version of me. We need a, be, a, a new version of us. We don't need a better version of what you are already doing. We need a completely new person in us. 
That is the story of us. That's the story of, of God. That's the story of God that not only do we rebel against God, He is making it possible for us to be a new person. You see, you don't need a 2.0 version that sin less. You need a completely new version of you that doesn't sin. And that cannot be done by yourself. That cannot be done by me. That cannot be done by the church. That cannot be done by the small group. That cannot be done by people keeping you accountable. At the end of the day, we need Jesus. We need Christ in our lives so that we can be a new person so that now we no longer have to subject ourselves to the temptation and the sins of this world. I think for many of us, the Bible has become a self-help book. How can I get better? How can I be a better person? How can I be a better Christian? Let me be careful in saying this. I don't think God is saying that, oh, whatever, just sin whatever you want. And then he's saying like, oh, you can just go sin and don't get better. I think the reason why we want to get better is not to earn God's love. The reason why you need to be better is not because by doing so, now you get a place at a table with God forever. In fact, it is the exact opposite of that. You don't need a better version. You don't need to sin less. You can't sin less. And unless we come to terms with that, we will always strive to be a quote-unquote Christian because you are, at the end of the day, still relying on yourself or people to help you to become someone that you cannot be, that you can never be. This is why the rest of this story of God is so amazing because Jesus had a plan to make you new. I think we come to make a mistake when we come to the Old Testament particularly and think people back then just earned their way for salvation. See, God gave them laws, Leviticus, right? Deuteronomy, they just obeyed the law. But what you don't realize is that God already knew they would mess up. That's why part of the law is that God will present them a system of sacrifice to make make amends to the, the mistakes that will make, the sins that they will commit. God knew that the point of salvation is not that they will live perfect life, but that they will trust and know God and now try and continue to grow in loving God and living a uh, holy life. The point of the story of God is not, now you messed up, go find a way to fix it yourself. And for the next few weeks, that's the good news that we'll look at. That is what the story of God is going to be about. For the rest of the Old Testament, for the rest of the New Testament, how did God bring forth a solution, a redemption for your life that will create a new person? Not a better version of the person. And if you are still trying to be that better, better, per, better version of that person, you are going down the wrong path. What you need is Jesus. What you need is trust in Jesus. What you need is that, God, I can't do this myself. I need new life. And the only way for me to get the new life, I cannot give birth to myself. I cannot have someone give birth to me. I need you to breathe new life in me just like you did in creation when God collected dust and breathed his own breath and made new people out of nothing. That is the story of God. And that is the story that you and I need. It can change the live faithful holy life in this world, but better yet for the world to come. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that nothing surprises you. That even our disobedience, even our sinful nature does not surprise you one bit because you know that we are broken, messed up people who are unable to put these pieces back together.
So, God, for every believer here, Lord, I pray that we'll walk away today just looking at your gospel with a fresh view. That the gospel still continues to, to, to work in our lives today because we have been made new. That we were dead, but now we're alive. And that new life in us is not just me, myself, but that Christ in me. And it points us to the hope of glory that one day we will continue to live with you forever. That the, the redemption will, complete, will become complete when we stand face to face with you in heaven. And God, I pray for those of us here who don't know you yet, who are still trying to fi- figure out ways to, to piece their broken lives together, continue to work through what, what kind of fixes there needs to be for the conflict that they're going through, for the trouble that they're dealing with day in, day out. God, I pray Lord, that they will see that nothing in this world could, could, could fix their problems but you. And this is why you've sent your son to die for us and raised from the dead after three days. So Lord, thank you for this beautiful story that we get to read day and day and day, week and week and week. And so Lord, I pray that this week as we look at your Bible once again, as we read or help, help us to taste the sweetness of the gospel in your word. No matter where we land, that we will get to see the gospel in all of your truth in every book of the Bible. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.